Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 2 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode, we'll be asking whether AI for EO is just hype. Let's do the news on the 6th of November 2019. I saw some news the other day that Sudan launched its first Earth observation satellite. So this was actually launched on a Chinese rocket, and the Chinese rocket was carrying a series of Chinese satellites, including Gaofen 7, which is a high-resolution Earth observation mapping satellite. The story I want to bring to our listeners' attention is that the Sudan Remote Sensing Satellite, SRSS-1, was also launched. This is quite interesting. It's a, a small satellite designed for both civil and military remote sensing, predominantly over Sudan. I've not really been able to find that much information about it. I've done a quick search trying to find out what sensor it might have and things like that, but I haven't found anything. Then maybe you work for the Sudanese Remote Sensing Authority or you had something to do with SRSS1 and you're able to get in touch, that would be great because it'd be really nice to try and highlight what this is doing and maybe fill out the story a bit more. I want to start off by saying that I saw this thing released by Landsat Headlines from the USGS. It's interestingly dated November the 11th, 2019 in our article, which I'm not quite sure how that's the case, but never mind. Anyway, it's a report of the economic valuation of Landsat imagery, and it states that Landsat Archive is valued in 2017 at $3.45 billion compared to $2.19 billion in 2011. So in six years, it's um, increased by what? bit more than a billion dollars. I think it's probably a large underestimate of what the economic value is. The sort of summary stuff is to me is a bit more headline gathering than the actual figures because I, I sort of take the figures as a bit of a pinch of salt. But I think that the sort of the general thing at the end it said that societal value of Landsat stems from its free and open policy. They did this sort of survey and they said if the cost was just $56 per scene, the number of users would decrease by 50%. Wow. It, it is a wow, isn't it? Because there's, yeah. there's a lot of businesses now and a lot of applications dependent upon open data. Yeah, pretty lucky that we have access to this open data today. This number of $56 decreasing the number of users by 50%. I wonder if that is because there are other open data sources out there now. And so any charge would mean that users would just move to a different open data source or whether it is literally a case of if everything had a charge, $56 would still reduce the number of users by 50%. We need to remember that there is a cost for the collation and supply of all of the open data, but we need to make sure we don't become blasé, I think. There's a graph for willingness to pay for the imagery on page six of the report, and it's basically an exponential decreasing graph. It is interesting, isn't it? I'm going to move on to a bit of software news. So coming out of Xavier over in the States, Geotrellis 3.0 has been released. Uh, so that was released at the end of October. This is basically a major update that contains a new feature additions and also API changes. And 
the thing that they're trying to do with this release is specifically enable and support cloud-optimized Geotiff workflows. This is quite significant because this piece of software allows you to process large amounts of raster information. And Scala, yeah? Yeah. I think I'm going to give Scala a go in 2020, if that's how you pronounce it. Scala, Scala. There's just so much choice, isn't there? I mean, this is something I've alluded to in the past. You know, how do you know which one is the one to go with? I mean, I sort of feel Python is my safe place. I'm very interested in Julia Lang. Scala is one that people talk about. The GeoTrellis demo site looks interesting and pretty compelling. Cool. I wanted to sort of start thinking about things that I've looked at in the past before we started in this podcast and shed some light on them. And one of these things that I first came across was Worldview from NASA. It's such a cool website to look at all the data from NASA. You can really sort of deep dive into this stuff. And it's a really good visualization sort of platform. And, you know, it, it has evolved over time. I mean, I'm just looking as I speak at the Earth at Night data set. And you can run through these different layers. You can download this data as well. Anyway, have, have you used this much as a visualization platform? Because I'm sort of curious as to how people consume data. Because I'm quite often still today downloading stuff and processing it locally. I need to be moving towards sort of processing in the cloud more. Have you used Worldview from NASA much? Um, I've not, no. Actually, I'm just having a look at their geostationary layers now. This is brilliant because this is one of the things that first got me into remote sensing was looking at geostationary imagery. I don't do enough of that now. I don't take the time to go and look at some of the whole disk imagery that, that comes from geostationary satellites. I like the fact you can animate through things. It's all fairly intuitive. It's a little busy when you, you first load it up. All, all, all this kind of stuff is just... Oh, sorry. I've just I have just randomly pressed animate map in 10-minute increments for the geostationary. This is brilliant. So if you do, if you click on the geostationary layers and then animate it... So, sorry, that, that was a bit overexcited. I know it is literally just putting one image over another, but it's really cool when you start to see storm systems and hurricanes and everything else actually moving. Uh, anyway, Worldview Earth Data, it's worth a second look. It's changed a lot since I first became aware of it. I just want to quickly give a heads up to something that's happening at the moment, which is the Stack Sprint 5. And there's a whole host of tweets coming out of that event. So that's basically happening 5th till the 7th of November in Arlington in the US. We've mentioned Stack multiple times, so I won't go on about that too much. But this is basically their fifth sprint to try and continue the development, which has been going for a couple of years now, I think. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to talk about was I found this post from the SpatialThoughts.com website called Mastering GDAL Tools. And I thought it was really, really good. This talks to you about how to process satellite data in GDAL and gives you all of the the command line stuff. Okay, yeah. Command line, right. For some people, it's a bit of a barrier. You know, that's all cool. But my sort of processing steps, I would go, you know, doing something in the, the GUI, doing something in the command line, and then trying to do it more repetitively using code. The GDAL command line is so powerful. I always end up falling back to it. I think this page is really good. And it sort of, you know, it goes into details about georeferencing and it's got things like, you know, computing in DVI and, and doing calculations. If you're working with raster data and you, you're sort of thinking about getting into GDAL command, then check it out, I think. Excellent. And that's it for the news.
in this episode, we want to have a discussion about whether or not artificial intelligence in the sphere of Earth observation is a lot of hype, or whether, as I'm sure many of you working in the industry might think, that artificial intelligence and machine learning can benefit Earth observation in various different ways. So, Andrew, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, and I think we've talked a little bit about this before, haven't we, or talked around it a bit. And yep. we seem to mention it a lot in the news and certainly the stuff that came out of GeoThor Good, the Google Earth Engine conference in the States. Recently, it seemed a lot of chat and a lot of the presentations and a lot of the stuff that was coming out of it was machine learning, AI related. I thought I would start off by kind of saying how I see it and, you know, maybe you disagree or agree or whatever. So I kind of see it as three kind of layers. Okay. First layer being this kind of supervised or unsupervised classification. And I include regression and clustering and contained in that. And this is not necessarily new, but this is effectively the stuff that we've been doing in right sensing for many years. And then the second layer I, I kind of see today is this kind of machine learning, which is trying to give a computer the ability to learn something without being programmed to learn it. So you, you'd give it some training data, but you wouldn't necessarily tell it anything other than this is the data and these are the labels. And then thirdly, this kind of AI thing, which could have a component of um machine learning or robotics or computer vision. So this is basically this idea where a computer can perceive its environments and make decisions to help it achieve its goal. So I've always thought that artificial intelligence includes machine learning as a subset, which includes deep learning as a subset of that. And my understanding is that deep learning is effectively using neural networks of varying complexity to try and understand patterns within data and then either do a classification or an object extraction. I see what you're saying with your three layers. One of the things I would say is this supervised, unsupervised and machine learning. Personally, I would see that as sort of more or less the same thing. Maybe the difference is that in the past we've had these classification and regression and clustering methods that work on small data sets. Maybe the more sort of ML side of things is that we now have updated algorithms that are able to take some of the concepts that worked on smaller data sets and you can throw them at huge data sets and the statistics don't go wonky. Because I think <laughs> that, that effectively for me is what machine learning is and <laughs> I realize that you know um, there are people who deal with this day in day out who listen to this podcast and more than happy to have a conversation on Twitter or via email about this. But for me, machine learning is effectively updated statistics for methods that have been around for some time. I think some of the really interesting stuff is happening in the deep learning sphere, but maybe that's just because that's not an area that I've naturally been hanging around because I'm a geographer, not a mathematician or a computer scientist. To be honest, I think there's a lot of very exciting stuff happening in terms of the algorithms that are available to us as data analysts. We just need to be careful as a sector that we don't use different acronyms or, or phrases without really understanding what they mean. I kind of see that the way we're using it in remote sensing and Earth observation at the moment in kind of three strands, which is object detection, image classification, and image segmentation, which is broken down into somatic segmentation and instant segmentation. So so basically, somatic is like, you know, 
these are all buildings and instant segmentation would be this is building one, this is building two, this is building three, etc. All of these have multiple ways of, of going about it. Object detection is interesting because I'm not sure how many objects there are left to sort of detect. And you're very much limited by what resolution of imagery you have for object detection. So, you know, building detection is pretty hard using 10 meter pixel for Sentinel yeah, 2, yeah. but um, a lot easier using the worldview data sets, for example. And it does depend on sort of what level of granularity and, and what kind of information you are looking to achieve. I would be very interested to know whether or not anyone has ever done a study to define what objects are in different spatial resolution imagery because i think most people think oh car building person tree whatever but that's all very high resolution imagery it'd be really fascinating to know whether anyone's then said well actually these are the objects you can get out of sentinel or these are the objects that you can get out of landsat or these are the objects you can get out of modis a storm system is an object for this purpose, but whether or not there is anyone who's running machine learning algorithms to do object detection on all the storm systems or potential storm systems, I don't know. There was definitely something that Development Seed did last hurricane season, which was using machine learning to predict the most likely path and formation of hurricanes in the hurricane season, which was quite interesting. Okay. But in many ways, this object detection stuff is useful in the counting side of high resolution data but i'm not sure detecting a storm system is on its own has that much value i generally think a lot of information is shared about object detection in social media and at conferences but not as much information is shared about image segmentation for example the segmentation of images and especially the the idea of instant segmentation is something that is kind of sometimes tied into object detection. I mean, if you can segment an image to get the um, boundaries of something, that's probably more valuable than saying that is the thing. Image classification, I think, still is not solved. <laughs> you know, land use and the like is very hard. And for years, of 80% has been a kind of realistic accuracy. I'm not sure we're ever going to get to 100% accuracy. That sounds like a very overfitted model <laughs> to me. And I'm a bit dubious when people start reporting 95% confidence in, in data. And you know, yeah. where I wanted to sort of go was, I think we're in this kind of situation where there is the risk that we're just data plumbers. But having said that, one of the best AI things, and there's loads of them out there, you know, including Coursera courses and lots of YouTube stuff, but I found the fast AI stuff, like Jeremy Howard, his sort of approach is really interesting because he's basically saying, let's just dive straight in there. We've built this thing so you don't have to really worry too much about how it's built. You just get the data ready and then you choose your sort of parameters and how deep you want to learn and then you run it. And that's kind of where we're going. We're getting to a point where you will just log on to a, a server and you will point it at your data pipeline and it will say, ah, this is a satellite data or ah, this is this is a collection of pictures or, yeah. or whatever. And it will know what your deep learning thing is, whether it's object detection, classification, segmentation, or all this kind of stuff. You'll just pick from a drop down one of these options for deep learning and, and off you go. And, and that's kind of, I think, where we're heading. Yeah, well, yeah, OK, but I'm going to pull you up there because you say, oh, you choose one of these drop downs for deep learning. I think that is fundamentally where some of this hype comes in because... 
people I, I've spoken to people at conferences and meetings and they go like, oh yeah yeah well, this will be a job for, for deep learning definitely and then you start trying to pin them down as to what they mean by deep learning and people who aren't working on this day-to-day or they're not from a, a mathematics background or a, a computer science background who understand the machine learning concepts how do these people decide which of the drop downs to choose there seems to be a multitude of different models out there all of them doing slightly different things and then you have all these different layers which is just another added complication i think to making this more accessible and i'm not saying that everybody who processes satellite data or or wants to get some information out of a satellite image needs to understand intuitively what some of these machine learning and deep learning algorithms do or, or even needs to be able to run the processes but i think it would be very useful for any library or platform that professes to make this type of analysis more accessible and more user-friendly, I think it's inherent on them to explain to people exactly what the differences are between these different types of models. Because yes, I, I take the points you were making, but I think, again, we need to be careful that we don't make out that this is something that's easy. And unless I'm wrong about this, but I think we need to accept that it's an incredibly hard thing to do. And although tools can be created to make it easier. I think this is always going to be something that you would need a specialist analyst to implement. Um, Interesting. So I'm I'm not sure it's an incredibly hard thing to do. I think the hardest part is getting good quality training data and something to train your model on. There's enough resources out there now for anybody with, you know, reasonable skills like us to get some decent results out. Now, I think what you were saying, and I think it's quite correct, that whether you know if ResNet 34 or ResNet 50 is the better model to be used (laughs) or not, and why you should use one or why you should use the other. And this is one of the reasons why I sort of rave about Jeremy Howard, because he kind of demystifies this kind of stuff. So this is the fast AI. Can you just explain to the listeners what fast AI is? Is it a platform or do you download something onto your computer? Or Yeah, it's a Python software for a deep learning library. It sits on top of PyTorch. It's just there to make things as simple as possible. You know, as long as you've got access. And I think this is one of the things that I was going to mention at the end, which is if you and your computer at the moment can get with a random forest model, with the scikits that yeah. I use quite a bit, what is your justification for powering up a cloud-based GPU or your own GPU to get an extra couple of percent? Uh, this is why I'm a bit reluctant to say I think it's it's really hard. I, I don't I don't think it's really hard. I think that there are barriers and access to a GPU is one of the barriers. It's definitely not there at the moment from what I've seen, but I, I think it's conceivable in the future that you will log onto a website and put your own data pipeline in and press the button. I just want to mention two data sets that have been put together specifically for this sort of uh, training of deep learning models. Both of them are based around Sentinel. First one is Big EarthNet, which is taking Sentinel-2 imagery. And there are, well, a while ago, there were over half a million Sentinel-2 image patches in there. So I'm sure this is growing all the time. And these have been labeled using Kareen land cover database stuff as well. So that's one data set that's available for training of these models. And the other one, which I think is just a nifty idea anyway, is Sen12. And what this does is take a SAR image patch, and then it takes the same patch cloud-free for Sentinel-2. So you've got Sentinel-1, Sentinel-2. So the, the idea behind this is that you can 
uses to train SAR optical data fusion models. Again, that's that's a pretty large data set. So it's got over a quarter of a million image pairs. Okay, so that's pretty big, yeah. There does seem to be this battle between TensorFlow and PyTorch in the various deep learning communities. And I'm not in those communities enough to be able to offer an opinion. I've always felt it's better to do things as local as possible and then bring that code up to scale. Um, and if you can do it on a small image, then see if you can do it on a bigger image kind of thing, rather than kind of just set off. I mean, I don't think any discussion of machine learning and deep learning in Earth observation would be complete without mentioning raster vision. But I am a little nervous about this because I realize <laughs> in um, the world of electric vehicles, there are, are Tesla fanboys who only talk about Tesla and nothing else. I do <laughs> worry sometimes that we get to a point where we're always talking about a Xavier. But this again, RasterVision is a open source Python framework for building these types of models on satellite and aerial and other Earth observation imagery. I've played around with some of their test data and I've done the object detection examples and things like that. And it works really well. And the thing I particularly like about it is that you can run it locally off a CPU. You can also run it locally off a GPU, but you can then also run it at scale as well. Trying to round this up because the topic is, is it just hype? And I think it's one of those things where the lazy thing to do would be to just say, we're in a new age of, of satellite imagery and machine learning solves all the problems. You know, do a bit of deep learning and you're done. The hardest parts aren't necessarily running the deep learning models. I think that the hardest part, from my experience, is building a big enough high quality data set for what you're trying to do. Is it just hype? Are we going to be talking about this in such great detail in five or six years time or is it just going to be one of those things where people like well it was just mainly statistics and there weren't that many challenges that we needed to solve maybe as a way of wrapping this up is to take that point because i've got a, a friend who's a professor of engineering and she's maintained that machine learning is just statistics she gets worked up when her students talk about how their machine learning and their AI is going to transform stuff. And she's like, no, you're taking statistics, you're using them in a slightly different way with larger data sets. I would say at the moment, we're on a bit of a, a knife edge between whether it's hype or not. At the moment, it's incredibly useful. But maybe in the future, we'll look back and think, well, yes, we were just using it for statistics. If this isn't delivering what the user wants, then really, we need to make sure that we're not absolutely wedded to these methods just because this is the thing that's out there at the moment. I absolutely completely agree. At some point, a client or a user has to be given value from, from whatever ever this is. I think this would be a really interesting topic to try and move on to Twitter if we can. So at EO scene from or the hashtag scene from above. If you've listened to this and, and you're yelling at your podcast player or, or if you agree with us, hopefully, <laughs> um, then it'd be really cool to have an extended conversation about this topic online. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSceneFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Map underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Goodbye. Can you hear me? Hello, 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 hello.
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.